race with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. And welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today we'll be hitting the road and talk about one of the hottest topics in robotics over recent years, autonomous vehicles. But we're not just going to talk about your average self-driving car. Instead, we'll be talking about the design of high-performance autonomous vehicles, or to put it simply, race cars. Chris Gerdes, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Stanford University and his team study how cars move, how humans drive cars and how to design future cars that work cooperatively with the driver or that drive themselves. And as part of their work, they're developing a whole range of self-driving high-performance cars, all with the ultimate goal of making autonomous vehicles safer. Our interviewer Audrey spoke to Professor Gerdes about modeling high-performance control of a vehicle and the team's autonomous race cars, an Audi TTS named Shelley, an electrified DeLorean called Marty. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Chris Gerdes. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford University, and I direct the Center for Automotive Research at Stanford. Would you tell me about your research? So we are interested in... Cars. We're interested in how cars move and how people drive cars and how in the future we may have vehicles that can drive themselves uh, either through urban environments or up to and uh, safely in some very tricky weather conditions. Mm-hmm. And so the talk that you presented yesterday, uh, you talked about pushing the performance of vehicles. Can you tell me a bit about the motivation for that? Yeah, so our motivation for looking at sort of high-performance automated vehicles, is to look at accident reduction and collision avoidance. And and our goal is really to develop vehicles that could avoid any accident that can be avoided within the laws of physics. I mean, it's possible to come into a turn just too quickly for the friction between the tires and the road or to have the situation in front of you change too quickly to avoid an accident. But if an accident can be avoided Uh, without violating the laws of physics, we would love to design cars that can do that. And so you started the plenary with a quote yesterday. Will you tell me that quote and then how it relates? It's one of my favorite quotes, and I I put it in all of the syllabi for classes that I teach. And the the quote is, all models are wrong, some of them are useful. And so this this comes from George Box, who uh, was very well known for system identification and and the Box Jenkins model in particular. And I think that's just a great way to talk about modeling and to talk about engineering. Uh, Engineers often embrace models because they give us insights about the control problem or about the physical system, which may be extremely complicated. Um, But the model allows us to to simplify down and get some real insight. And the challenge comes when we trust that model or believe it a little bit too much uh, and start to think of that as reality as opposed to a simplified form of reality. So beginning with the idea that all models are wrong, Um, then allows us to kind of focus on, well, is it useful or is it not useful? Mm -hmm. And so what I'd like to do is to walk through the model you use uh, for cars and starting with the basic model that you talked about yesterday and then building it up. Uh, So 
Would you talk first about the first assumption you make, making the tire that's going in the direction the tire is rolling? Yeah, so the first model that, that I talked about was what we talk about as a kinematic model. So in this model, we make the assumption that the tire can only roll in the direction it's pointing. And this allows you to simplify the vehicle equations tremendously. It captures the fact that it's hard to move a car exactly sideways, um, that it will tend to, to go forward and turn in an arc. And with this simple model, you can predict the arc that it will turn on for a given uh, steer angle. And, and so that, that becomes a, a model that's used a lot of times for, uh, say, wheeled mobile robots or parallel parking, other sorts of things that happen at low speeds. Mm-hmm. And then so using this model, you simulated, and then you found that it, there was a little bit of error when you were following, trying to follow a trajectory? Yeah, so if you then simulate and assume that reality matches that model, uh, you can actually get it to, to track a path uh, quite well if you provide a little bit of feedback. And the trick to the feedback there is that you want to look a little bit ahead on the path, creating what's known as a look-ahead controller. And when you do that, then the vehicle will stabilize and you can track a path exactly. Uh, But when you start to look at real vehicles, uh, like some of our test vehicles, it turns out that model is a little bit too simple. Uh, This model would predict that if I know the radius of the path that I want to drive, then I can pick the steer angle and hold it. Uh, For any speed, it's the same steer angle. And it turns out for real cars, that's not the case. As you go faster around a turn, you need to steer more. And therefore, the the kinematic model kind of breaks down a little bit if you're trying to use that to, to track at anything above parking lot speeds. Why is that? And that's because tires actually do deform. And this is one of the fundamental aspects of vehicle dynamics. So vehicle dynamicists love to look at tires. Uh, It's really fascinating that all of the forces that are determining whether your car accelerates, brakes, uh, turns, go through four little contact patches between the tire and the road, each one of which about the, the size of your outstretched palm. And so when you look at tires, the simplest model is to say, well, they're actually deforming as the car turns, and therefore they move at an angle, uh, which is slightly different than the direction they're pointing in. And vehicle dynamicists call that the slip angle. So in other words, I have to deform my tires a little bit in order to get them to generate force. So as I go around my radius at higher speeds, I need more force to hold my path. That force creates deformations in the tires, and it turns out that that will change the steer angle that I have to uh, put on the wheel in order to hold that path. Mm-hmm. Now, did the look-ahead controller, did you have to modify it for this, or do you use the same approach? So the interesting thing is that the intuition that we get from our kinematic model, which we've demonstrated is wrong, it turns out it's actually very useful, uh, because that same look-ahead control technique, the idea of kind of fix, fix the vision of the car in the sense that on a point a little bit ahead and steer to put that on the path, ends up working quite well even for this dynamic model that you can create uh, assuming tire deformation. Mm -hmm. Just to understand the look-ahead controller a little bit more, how would it be different than a a derivative PD controller? It actually works out to be very similar to a uh, proportional derivative controller. Yeah, Yeah. so basically the way that it works is a look-ahead controller. If we think about coordinates to describe our vehicle, um, we're trying to track a path. And so we can think about 
three coordinates that would describe where we are, how far along the path we are, how far away from the path we are laterally or side to side, and what direction we're heading relative to the path. So are we pointed along the path or are we at some angle to the path? And what the look-ahead controller does is it provides feedback, which is a combination of our lateral error, how far we are from the path, and our heading error, or how we're oriented relative to the path. Mm -hmm. And so if you work through the equations, it provides... uh, dynamics that are very similar to a proportional derivative controller. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, because it uses two positions of the vehicle, uh, in practice, it ends up being a little bit smoother if you can get those values um, because you are not differentiating the way you would with a proportional derivative controller. I see. And so is this slip angle, um, is this the final model we're going to use? Um, so the simple model of force being proportional to our slip angle holds up to a lateral acceleration of about 0.6 g. Um, So if we do that and we keep our vehicle within those limits, uh, then it holds pretty well and we we get very good tracking results. Uh, But if we really want to push... And when does that occur? Intuitively, if I think about going around a turn of constant radius Mm -hmm. and I increase my speed... I'm going to get more and more lateral acceleration or centripetal acceleration of of my car. Normally, if I'm driving around town, most people will have lateral accelerations maybe somewhere between about 0.1 and 0.3 g, or Mm -hmm. g being the acceleration due to gravity. Um, If you start to drive in a much sportier way or if you're trying to make some sort of emergency maneuver, uh, that may get higher, Mm -hmm. up to maybe 0.5 or 0.6 g. The model holds pretty well up to that point. Now, if you really want to push the car, uh, most cars are capable of something more like 0.8 or 0.9 G. And if you are trying to get out of the way of an accident and you want to use all the vehicle's capabilities, uh, that's where you are on a dry road. Uh, If, however, the road is icy, you will hit the limits of the car's capabilities at a much lower level of lateral acceleration, maybe 0.1 or 0.2 G. And so... The trick to modeling this is to understand that the tires only have a certain limited amount of friction. And so eventually, if I try to produce lateral acceleration, I'm going to be limited by how much friction there is between the tire and the road. Mm -hmm. And so we need to add that to our model as well Mm -hmm. and understand that that we can have uh, different problems, whether I run out of friction on the front tire or the rear tire. If I run out on the front then my vehicle is basically uncontrollable. I can turn the steering wheel and it won't do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I run out of friction on the rear, then my vehicle becomes unstable and it will go into a spin. Yep. So this is like drifting. Exactly. I may intentionally decide to do that and drift. Uh, So in that case, what somebody is doing to drift is to uh, make sure that the rear tire runs out of friction either by, say, pulling a handbrake or accelerating mm-hmm. uh, with uh, a sizable engine, for instance. Yes. And then also, do, so do we have to consider that, that a tire can only deform so much? That's right. And so if you want to control a vehicle in these very extreme conditions, then the limit uh, to deformation, which is ultimately how much friction you have between the tire and the road, becomes extremely important. So you have to be able to handle these situations where the vehicle may become uncontrollable or may become unstable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 
Would you summarize? So is this the full model that we implement on our race car a bit later? So this is a, a pretty complete model. The, the one thing that, that we haven't talked about up to this point is, is what happens when I accelerate and brake. Oh, yes. Because as I accelerate and brake, then I, I do have some competition for the friction uh, in the contact patch between the tire and the road. So I can use that friction to corner. I can use that friction to accelerate or brake. Uh, but I have to make some trade-offs there. Andrew, would you summarize the model that we've developed thus far? So the model that we have so far uh, says that the behavior of my vehicle is going to be determined by the forces acting on the vehicle. And the forces are arising by deformation at the tire, which depends upon the slip angle or the angle that the tire assumes relative to its velocity vector. And up to a certain point, if a more slip angle produces more force, and then I reach the limits of the tire, and at that point, my force is saturated, and any further slip angle doesn't help. So I'm either spinning if that rear slip angle is increasing, or I'm steering to no avail if my front slip angle is increasing. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me about your work on the racetrack uh, moving forward? Yeah, so what we've attempted to do is to use this understanding and these sorts of models to go out on a racetrack and see if we can control an automated vehicle at the same level of capability of expert drivers. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me first about the cars you use? So we use a number of different vehicles in the lab. One of the ones that we've used the most for racing is Shelly. Shelly is an Audi TT, uh, which is mostly stock, but we have worked with um, the Electronics Research Lab and, and Audi to tap into her system so we can send acceleration, brake, gear shift, uh, steering commands directly to the car. Uh, we've also used a student-built vehicle, X1, uh, which was built totally from the ground up uh, by students to do a lot of the, the precursor work for this as well. Mm -hmm. And so what kind of sensors do you put on Shelly? So Shelly has a lot of the stock sensors that most cars have these days, things like uh, wheel speed sensors, um, gear shift position sensors, and, and these things that tell the basic operation of the car. We've added inertial sensors and accurate GPS on top of that so we can figure out where Shelly is. How accurate is the GPS? Um, about one to two centimeters of accuracy. So we're sending yeah. differential corrections. And so we know Shelly's location mm -hmm. quite accurately. Occasionally there can be interruptions and we get a little bit of drift in that. Um, but in general, we're, we're able to locate within about one or two centimeters. Yeah. yeah, and so, so that, that really helps uh, give us the position. And then the accelerometers and gyroscopes then tell us the, the acceleration and angular velocities of, of the vehicle. We also use a two-antenna GPS system, and what's important about that is it tells us not only the velocity but the direction of the velocity. So if we are starting to, to go sideways, if the vehicle is starting to spin out, then the fact that our velocity vector is no longer pointing along the vehicle center line is really important for us. To know. Mm -hmm. So no computer vision, no LIDAR? We do have a front uh, laser scanner on Shelly. Normally when we use that, it's, it's largely to determine that the path in front of us is clear. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've used that for some collision avoidance tests, being able to detect a cone and trigger uh, emergency maneuvers, for instance. Um, but we're not currently using that in the localization. So how did you learn from race car drivers? Uh, did you study how they behave on the racetrack? We did. We went out on the racetrack with a number of 
excellent race car drivers in some vintage race cars, and we studied the lines uh, or the paths that they took around the, the racetrack. So we wanted to get some ideas of the sorts of paths that they would drive and see if the optimization algorithms that we were writing to try to determine the best path around a racetrack had any sort of comparison to what humans actually did. Mm -hmm. And so how does your car compare to race car drivers? So we have compared our car to a few different drivers, uh, one of whom is a champion amateur race car driver. And he was initially much faster than the car, but after some tuning of these algorithms, as we began to get a little bit better and um, figured out exactly what sort of model we wanted to use, uh, we ultimately were able to go faster around the track uh, than he was able to. Mm -hmm. We then started working with J.R. Hildebrandt, who's a, a pro driver. He's um, a full-time IndyCar yeah. driver. And uh, J.R. Uh, was definitely faster and, and still is definitely faster than, than Shelly is around the track. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a bit about the differences between amateur and pro. Yeah. But uh, first, in the so you showed the video of the paths between the amateur pro driver and Shelly, and the amateur pro driver cheated at one point. Yes, so this was kind of a fun thing, is that when we were, uh, when we were comparing with uh, David Vodden, who's the uh, CEO of Thunder Hill Raceway Park, which is the track that we're normally testing on, uh, there's one area of the road where um, there's actually nothing preventing you uh, from, from cutting inside sort of the, the line uh, demarcating the edge of the track. So we had programmed Shelly to think that that was the edge of the track, and she obeyed that uh, precisely, whereas David saw, hey, there's nothing actually here. I can uh, shorten my path by essentially cutting on the inside of this turn. And so at, at that point, yes, he cheated and got a little bit of an advantage uh, over Shelly. And I, I think that's really an interesting thing to think about in general, not just on the racetrack, but for automated vehicles uh, in general, we take these sorts of shortcuts as human beings. Um, and automated vehicles in the real world can tend to be very literal. They do exactly uh, what we tell them to do in many cases, even if a human being would use judgment and come up with a different situation, uh, excuse me, come up with a different solution. Mm -hmm. So if the goal is to perform very well and to be very fast, are you going to consider cheating at any points? Like maybe... Maybe the car will realize that there is another point that is better to cheat that the pro amateur hasn't identified or any, any thoughts? There are a few things that professional drivers use to qualify faster. Um, and so one of the tricks that you can use is to uh, sacrifice your speed uh, to line the car up a little bit differently in the last turn right before the start line where they begin timing. Uh, so you go around a track and you, you sacrifice a little bit of speed, but you straighten your car up and therefore turn it into a longer straightaway. Uh, so then you can get one really good lap um, between start line to start line. Mm -hmm. And so that's a trick that race car drivers use. There's a lot of tricks that we could use, um, but that's not really what we're trying to do. So ultimately what we'd like to do is to learn how to control the car up to its limits. And what we've learned is that there's still things that professional race car drivers do that we haven't mastered in our control algorithms. Yes. And, and those things are actually beneficial to safety. So, so long as we see a difference and 
making our algorithms better would be an improvement in vehicle safety, uh, we're going to continue to go after this problem. If we see things where it really is sort of trickery yeah. uh, or, or things that don't translate to general safety, then the problem becomes a little less interesting to us. And one thing that I thought was very interesting in watching the video of the competition between the pro amateur and Shelly was that Shelly was much faster on the straightaways. Uh, lost a little ground on each of the curves, but much faster on the straightaways. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so in that particular video that I showed, we actually had not weighted Shelly. So Shelly was without the weight of the, the human and was able to out-accelerate uh, because of the lower weight. The other thing that Shelly did quite well, though, was to find the shortest path. And so when you're on a straight uh, and you're not limited by how fast the car can turn, really what you want to do is to find the shortest distance because that's the way that you're fast. And Shelly has a way of doing that much better than human drivers because she can, she can literally calculate that on the path. We have, uh, since the, the time that I took those experiments, uh, we've weighted Shelly uh, and ballasted her about the same way that that she would be loaded with uh, a human driver and passenger. And so we have a, a fairer comparison. How does she yeah. compare in that case? Um, she's still a little bit faster mm -hmm. uh, in that case. Now, so would you talk a bit about the differences between amateur and pro drivers? So what's really interesting with professional drivers is how repeatable their lap times are. And we were just talking with uh, Kevin Conway, who is a a former NASCAR Rookie of the Year uh, out at the racetrack. And he said in his job as a professional driver, he's currently driving for Lamborghini, um, that he'll go out for a qualifying lap. And if that qualifying lap is within a tenth of a second of the best sort of segment times that he's put together in practice, he's fine. If it's two-tenths of a second slower, he's going to get a warning. And if it's three-tenths of a second slower, he's looking for a new job. And so what's really fascinating about that is that if you think about mathematical models, if you think about how we approach these problems as engineers, we are rarely getting that level of precision. When you think about all the uncertainties, the friction between the tire and the road is constantly changing. It's different from one turn to the next. It's different as the tires heat up. Um, so it turns out that professional race car drivers really can't be estimating all of this. They need to be feeling how to push the car to its absolute limits. And so they've got some strategies that we're seeing uh, to literally push the car out to the limits of its capabilities to feel where those limits are and to, in fact, bend the path as necessary to accommodate the limits of the vehicle. So that's something that Shelley doesn't do yet, although we've been implementing uh, that in some very simple forms on her, and it turns out that they work quite well. Mm -hmm. And so one of these things, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was drifting around corners, correct? And the so pro amateurs did not drift, correct? They did not slide out at all? Well, the drifting is a little bit different than uh, racing for speed. Yes. So you can show, in fact, that drifting is almost in all cases slower than, than going around uh, the track um, with the tires stuck to the road. So if you're really trying to be fast around a racetrack, in general, you won't drift. The, the mm -hmm. exception is if you're on a dirt track uh, where, where drifting, in fact, can be faster. But on a paved track, it, it turns out drifting is, is really much more for effect uh, than it is for speed. But 
the aspects of, of drifting really capture the interplay of the forces between the drive or brake forces and the cornering forces. And so being able to put a car into a drift and sustain it really gives us some comfort in both our models and in our controller's capability to handle these sort of combined uh, acceleration, braking, and cornering situations. Mm -hmm. And so you have another vehicle. Uh, It's, let's see. So Marty, I believe it's called? Marty, our multiple actuator research test bed for yaw control. Would you tell me a bit about Marty? Marty is a DeLorean, uh, which we have modified with the help of Renovo Motors, which is a a local startup uh, in Silicon Valley uh, that's done some high-performance electric vehicles. And so Marty actually has individual wheel motors on the left and right wheel, so we're able to produce uh, some extremely high drive forces, and we can vector them a little bit by turning the different wheels. Um, It turns out, as we discovered playing around with the car, DeLoreans look great, but they really were not very good uh, cars in any respect. They they didn't accelerate quickly. They they braked. uh, Their brakes were very poor. This is the car from Back to the Future. This is the car from Back to the Future, yeah. So it looks great. I mean, (laughs) there is no car that says science project better than a DeLorean. Um, but in fact, um, we, we had to make quite a few changes to it. We're pretty convinced that Marty is like the best handling DeLorean in the world <laughs> at this point, although that may not be a very high bar. <laughs> okay. So tell me about the experiments you're running with Marty. So with Marty, we are looking at putting the car into a sustained drift, which you can show is actually an equilibrium state of the system. It turns out it's an unstable equilibrium. Uh, so the car wants to either straighten up or spin out. Would you tell me about an- another simple system that is an unstable equilibrium, just for reference? Sure. So uh, a classical example of an unstable equilibrium would be an inverted pendulum, or in fact, you can think about that as a rocket uh, in in flight, where you're you're pushing something from the from the bottom, and the mass is uh, above you. So that becomes a system which you have to work to stabilize. Very easy to tip over otherwise, or very easy to, in the case of a drifting car, very easy to spin out, lose control? Right. So the two possibilities with the drifting car are either that it goes deeper into the turn, in other words, it spins out, or it begins to uh, straighten up, and and then we we have something that resembles more the way Shelley would go around a racetrack, uh, pointing, as you would expect it, largely down down the path. And so this is something that you can see just by trying to balance a pen, for instance. If you put a, a pencil or a pen in your outstretched palm uh, and attempt to, to balance it, uh, that's also an unstable equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And so drifting is an unstable equilibrium. And so how is controlling it? So what we're doing to control it is to actually coordinate now the steering and the amount of torque that we put on the rear drive motors. And a way to kind of think about it is when we put more torque on the rear drive motor, uh, we're always saturating the tire. Uh, So the tire is always at the limits Mm -hmm. of what friction it can produce. And what we're doing is essentially just moving the force vector through some combination of lateral uh, cornering force and longitudinal drive force. So we sort of vector that force, um, not unlike the way you might see with thrust vectoring in a fighter jet. Um, And then we're at the same time using our steering to stabilize the vehicle. So we're trying both to stabilize this unstable equilibrium and keep the vehicle traveling 
around the desired path. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a fun control challenge. I think so. And then does Marty have the same sensors as Shelly? So Marty uh, has very similar sensors to Shelly. We're using primarily GPS uh, for that. We are getting some laser scanners to to put on Marty as well. One of the challenges there, of course, is you can't just put them on the front because as Marty is drifting, uh, he's going at about a 45-degree angle, so there's not much difference between front and side in, uh, in some of these situations. Okay, now tell me what the experiment looks like with Marty. So with Marty, we've been drifting around initially just a cone, uh, and so when we sort of introduced Marty to the world, we wanted to do that on, on Back to the Future Day. Uh, so the day in the second movie when they arrive in the future. And what we had done up to that point was to basically show this unstable equilibrium in a constant radius, or in other words, basically doing donuts uh, around, a, around a cone. Since then, we've gotten um, more complicated, and so Marty can certainly do donuts around a cone, but can also uh, drift out to larger radii and reproduce patterns uh, while maintaining a constant drift. In the more complicated paths, when you have a series of cones and it drifts at several different radii, how do you plan the path? So what we do is we simply tell Marty this is the the path that we would like you to drive, and yes. Marty then determines the commands uh, in real time to follow along that path. And one of the interesting parts of this problem is that we literally are specifying the path and not the trajectory, the trajectory being uh, a path, but also specifying where we want the vehicle on the path as a function of time. So Marty is using speed as essentially a free parameter uh, to be able to go around the path and maintain the desired side slip angle or you know, basically get sideways um, mm-hmm. as it's going around. And then how does this change over time? Because the tires are becoming more and more like melting rubber. That's right. We only get a few tests. Um, the, the tires are, in fact, producing clouds of white smoke uh, and shredding themselves into, into small rubber particles as we do the test. And therefore, the controller has to have a certain amount of robustness uh, in, involved because the, the tire properties are changing. And so it has to be able to uh, handle that sort of adjustment. Mm-hmm. Now, in both Marty and Shelley, how many... How complicated is the system to set up? Uh, I, I mean, in terms of the controller for the parameters that you're using, how many parameters do you use? Let's see. Um, is it extensive tuning that you do? It's not a lot of tuning, actually. Um, and if we do want to retune, there's uh, some very simple tests that we can do, going back to our earlier discussion about going around a corner at different speeds. We literally do what's known as a ramp steer mm-hmm. test. So we essentially increase the steering wheel uh, and see how the vehicle handling changes, uh, how much more we need to steer to go around that turn. And from that, we can basically predict our tire properties, both the sort of initial linear region where our force increases proportional to our slip angle and then where that saturates. Mm -hmm. If we know that and we have an estimate of the mass of the vehicle, um, we have a lot of what we need uh, to be able to use either either Marty or Shelly at the limits. Mm -hmm. And one thing I heard someone ask you after the talk, which I found interesting, is about using machine learning on Shelly. Would you talk a bit about that for various parts of Shelly? 
Yeah, this is something that we're really interested in because obviously machine learning is, is quite a powerful tool. And as we take data uh, with the car out on the track, we'd love to be able to learn from it in some way. And so one of the questions we're asking now is what do we want to learn? Uh, we have these physical models that actually capture a lot of the behavior um, but do have some uncertain parameters. So one possibility for learning is that we simply learn the parameters of these physical models. Uh, but again, going back to the beginning, all models are wrong. Uh, these are useful models, but in fact, they don't capture necessarily everything that can happen with a car, the sort of weight transfer that can happen uh, under heavy braking, for instance, the weight transfer that happens from side to side. They approximate that, uh, but we could potentially capture that more exactly if we were to take a machine learning approach. So one of the things that we're doing this summer is, is to try a few different ways of formulating um, our problem as a, as a learning problem. Does it make it more difficult to explain the results of the car, how it behaves, if you use machine learning? This is one of the things that we like about physical models because as we go into a turn, the, the car is turning a certain amount, it's applying the brakes or the, or the throttle a certain amount, and we can very easily explain why the algorithm is, is doing that. Um, with machine learning approaches, it's not always as transparent. Uh, so the neural network, for instance, is producing a certain set of outputs uh, because we gave it a certain set of inputs, but the mapping between those is less intuitive. And so we think that there's a lot of power in, in simple physical models uh, to perhaps be able to provide some, some guidance or some guarantees of performance. Uh, and if we can combine that or with machine learning and leverage those capabilities as well, it would seem like we could ultimately have the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Now, how does it feel to drive in a high-performance autonomous car? Well, it's a little disconcerting at first. Most people are not used to going around uh, a track at the limits of the car's capability. Uh, so a lot of times when the car roars into the first turn uh, and hits it at the limits, uh, the passengers will make some sort of exclamation, uh, which, which we may... <laughs> Several examples of which we may not be able to repeat here uh, on, the, on the podcast, but we, we often get that sort of initial reaction from people because they're, they're quite surprised uh, by, by how aggressive the car really is. And so that's not a, a particularly comfortable way of driving. If you're used to racing or you're used to going around a corner with race car drivers, uh, it will seem rather, rather normal. Um, but to most people, it seems quite aggressive. Got you. So it feels similar to race car drivers don't um, notice any large difference if they're going with the car or with a, another race car driver? Well, what's interesting is that race car drivers do notice some differences, and it relates to the fact that they are truly feeling the limits of the car. Um, so Shelley, for instance, in one of the turns on Thunder Hill, which has a large constant radius, will kind of settle into a speed and essentially feel pretty comfortable going around at that speed. Whereas JR is always pushing up against the limits to say, could I go just a little faster? Could I go just a little bit faster? And so that was one of the things that he remarked being in the car that felt quite different from his driving style was that Shelley seemed somewhat complacent uh, going around this turn, whereas he was always trying to make sure that there was, there was absolutely nothing left, that there was no way that he could get around that turn, even just a little bit faster. And so what kind of future work do you imagine? 
So understanding this difference with race car drivers has inspired a lot of our, our current direction. So we want to move from being able to drive comfortably up to the limits of the car's capability to really being able to drive comfortably at the limits of the car's capability. So that's what Marty is doing. Uh, that's what we'd like to do going around the racetrack with, with Shelly. And then we'd like to continue to adapt some of this work to low friction situations. Uh, so in February, we uh, were able to test this on icy test tracks as well and discovered that it largely worked quite well. There were a few things that we needed to think about a little bit more when we got to pure polished ice uh, roads, and we're, we're currently thinking about that. But I think if we're able to drive comfortably at the limits of the car's capability, and we can do that whether the road is icy, whether it's snowy, whether it's wet, whether it's dry and we have a lot of grip, uh, then we've provided a really secure foundation of vehicle dynamics that people can use to develop automated vehicles knowing that Literally, they can access all of the car's capability and ultimately avoid any accident within the laws of physics. Thank you. Thank you. And that's the end of today's episode. But don't worry, we've got plenty more where this one came from. Just visit us at robohop.org. The next podcast will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Race with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>